What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. Hey, it's Mike again. Mike the Hermit Adams. And it's old religion dystopia, knowing versus belief. And it is... Uh, May the 26th, allegedly 2017. Oh, what an interesting creature I am. And what will be interesting in this journey is to find out who are the cannibals, who are the troglodytes, the wild men. Is it just Indian folklore? Or is there something even more sinister going on with a connection between uh, cannibalism and Christianity in Western and, well, Eurasia? You will be truly surprised one way or the other. Wild men of Nevadad, the wild men of Nevadad, or the wild woman of Nevadad, is believed to be one of the first sightings of Bigfoot in Texas. History. It was widely reported in 1837 throughout the early settlements along the Navidad River bot- bottoms, circa the modern-day town of Sublime, Texas, in Lavaca, Lavaca County. Staves along with Nevada, called it the thing that comes. For though no one saw it, there was always evidence that something had come. On moonlit nights from as early as 19, or excuse me, 1836, people would find food missing from their cabins. And even though the intruder would have had to step over sleeping dogs to reach it, families stop fattening hogs because the fat hogs would inevitably be replaced by scrawny ones. Although valuables such as watches and money were never taken, sometimes tools would disappear only to reappear later. Beautifully polished, occasionally searchers would find a camp, but the thing never returned while they waited. The creature was most often described as covered in short brown hair and very nimble, which allowed for it to elude capture for many years. Reverend Samuel C. A. Rogers, a circuit-riding minister in the area, first saw a total of three footprints in the spring of 1845 and continued to spot them for several years before all but the largest disappeared, although 
Some believe the creature survived for many years. Rogers wrote in 1850, the largest hunt for wild man was organized. And the hunters did trap a man in a tree, surrounded by baying dogs and horses and men and guns. This is where the legend diverges into varying versions. The most common being that the captured man was actually a solitary African who wore no clothes and spoke no English. In 1851, a sailor who spoke with the man's African dialect reportedly came traveling through the area. It turned out to be the wild man was a prince who had been sold into slavery as a child. Sorry for this. Pause. Hopefully you can hear me now. Sorry about that delay. That's my wonderful mom. My friend, my only ally. Poor guy. And poor gal. Oh, well. It is the way that is. Back to this whole thing about a wild man, supposed to be a prince, an African prince, who had been sold to slavery as a child. After reaching Texas, he and the companion had escaped, but the companion had died from exposure after a few years. The Texas state... Gazette published a runaway slave capture notice on June 24th to August 12th of 1854 for an African well-known as the Wild Woman of Navida. So as uh, a prince or a princess, did I misread this? Well, actually, he's a man. <clears throat> Supposed to belong to the Beckford, uh, late Virginia, that was taken up in Lavaca County. It is said that the wild man in Nevada, and Nevada dad, was eventually sold into slavery in Victoria, Texas, and lived in Refugio and Victoria counties until his death in 1884. Collections of these early accounts were later published in their entirety by J. Franklin uh, Dobby's book, Tales of the Old Time Texas, in 1928. Wouldn't that be interesting? And then I guess there's a film about it, The Wild Man in Nevada, 
It was directed, written directed by Dwayne Graves and Justin Meeks and co-produced by their college filmmaking instructor, Kim Henkel, who just happened to be the co-writer slash producer of Tobe Hopper's semi-annual 1974 horror classic Texas Chain Salt Massacre and Wild Men of Nevada premiered in 2008. And the Trebekan Film Festival in New York City and was later released by IFC Films. Films was believed based on the real-life journals of Dale S. Rogers, a man who, in the 1970s, lived along the banks of Nevada, Nevada, I shouldn't say Nevada, it's Navy Dad, Nevadad River, Sublime, Texas, the same area of the original Legend of the Wild Man of Nevada surfaced back in the late 1800s. The film follows Dale in his wheelchair using wife Jane and her off oft shirtless, lazy eye caretaker, Mario, though their ranch sits in the vast area of prime or paying hunters, Dale has resisted opening up the land because of the strange Bigfoot-like creature supposedly inhabiting it. After the prodding of some of the rifle-loving townsfolks and the loss of a welding job, Dale gives in and opens the gates to his compound. Then the hunters become the hunted. Interesting. Interesting, 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 I would say. The Kawala. The Kawala. Ka. Ka. Li. La. So it's Ka. Ka. La. Also written as Ka. Kawala. Previously known as the Kaculets, the Kwaculet, Kula, I guess that's how it pronounces. Kalkult, that's it, Kalkult is an indigenous language spoken in the, uh, I can't, am I going through the same thing again? I don't want to go through all that again. I don't want to do that. We learned about them already. And then we learn about the um, the Atakepa um, and their alleged uh, cannibalism. Um, interesting that the Europeans introduced cannibalism to um, 
uh, the Americas. And you'll, I will be doing quite a bit of reading on that to prove that. Uh, not to say that not all tribes were not cannibals in, in the Americas, but as we learned, some were. If we know in the Northwest tribes and such, they didn't have as much contact to humans as others, and so they created their own versions of cannibalism, ritual uh, ceremonial cannibalism. The wild man or wild man, wild man in the woods, archaically wild woes, uh, woad woes, was, was, that's why I say woes, woad woad, woad woes, or woad woes, a mythical figure that appears in the artwork of and literature of medieval Europe comparable to satyrs and fauns. A type of classical mythical mythology and to the Sylvanus, Sylvanus, the Roman god of the woodlands. Defining characteristics of the figure is its wildness. From the 12th century, they had consistently depicted as being covered with hair. Images of wild men appear and the carved and painted roof bosses where interse- intersecting ogee vaults met the Canterbury Cathedral in position where one is also likely to encounter the vegetal green man. <clears throat> Green Man is a sculpture or other representation of a face surrounded by or made of leaves. Branches and vines may sprout from the mouth and nostrils and other parts of the face, and these shoots may bear flowers and fruit commonly used as decorative architectural ornament. Green Man is frequently found in carvings on both secular and ecclesiastical buildings, really. The Green Man is also a popular name for the English public houses, and various interpretations of the name appear on inn signs, which sometimes show full figure rather than the head. The Green Man motif has uh, many variations found in many cultures from many ages around the world. The green man is often related to natural vegetative vegetative deities and primarily interpreted as symbols of rebirth represent the circle of growth in each spring. Some speculate that the mythology of the green man developed independently in the tradition of separate ancient cultures and evolved into a wide variety of examples found throughout history. And then you see all sorts of the churches, types, uh, later variations, literature uh, outside Europe, galleries. And I would have to say that there might be something to Green Man because I have personally seen some things that would suggest that there is something going on in the woods. And I don't think it's pareidolia. Okay, back to the wild men. Or man. 
The image of Wild Man survived and appeared to, as a as supporter for heretical coat of arms. Heretical coat of arms. Her Heraldo Dory uh, Heraldry Heraldry is a broad term encompassing the design, display, and study of armoral bearing known as ar armory as well as related disciplines such as vexology. And vexology is the science and study of history, symbols, and the use of flags and by extension any interest in flags in general. The word is synonymous with the Latin word vexillum or flag. And the Greek suffix logia study uh, constitutes the International Federation of Vexillological Association. So there you go. All right, back to this. We were just got talking about uh, study of flags and coat of arms, and especially in Germany as well as in 16th century Renaissance engravings of Germany and Italy were particularly fond of wild men and wild women and wild families and were examples of Martin's gone. Jars, Gowers, Skungowers, died in 1491, and of Albrecht Durer, uh, I don't know if I pronounced these names right, 1471 through 1528, among others. Okay, uh, Martin Skungower, um, as known as Martin Scone, Martin Beautiful, or Habs, Habs Martin, Pretty Martin, by his contemporaries. Uh, Skongar was born about 1440 in Colmar, Alsace. Probably the third or fourth son of Caspar Skongauer, Goldsmith in Augsburg, and taught his son the art of engraving. And as examples of some of his artwork, uh, religious and otherwise, mostly religious, but some crypto. Cryptoids, or if that's even a word, really, I don't know. And Arbedeck Durer, the German, and uh, 21 May 1471, and lived to, of course, uh, 1528. Nuremberg, which probably has these strong connections to the Jesuits and to the Roman Empire. Established a, 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 a reputation and influence across Europe when he was still in his 20s due to high qu quality woodcutting prints. Uh, 
need a lot of engravings of the wood wild man and other such things. And we could go into great detail about him. He'd be probably an interesting fellow to actually learn about. <clears throat> Terminology. First element of wood woes is usually explained as the voodoo wood forest. Not woo-woo, voodoo. So the Americans, all you guys are calling it woo-woo, probably should be calling it woo-woo, calling it woo-woo, should be calling it voodoo. The second element is less clear and has been identified as a hypothetical noun. Weza, being, and preface and commas, being, from the verb wizan, wozan, to be, to be alive. The Old English form is unattested, but it would be, would have been voodoo weza, or voodoo, yeah, the same thing, saying the same thing. I don't, I don't know why it's saying the same. Voodoo Weza. Um, anyways, Voodoo Weza. It may also mean a, for, a foreign lord or abandoned person cognate with the German Weiz and the just Weiz and the Dutch Weiz, which both being orphan. Terminology of the Middle Ages was varied. In the Middle English, there was the term Woodwoes that is spelled W-O-D-E-W-O-S-E, or Wood de House, which is W-O-O-D-E House, like the building house, and then Wood Was. Wood Woes occurred in Sir Gawain and the Great and the Green Knight. The Middle English world word in the first attested in 1340s references to the wild man, decorative art, decorative artwork popular at the time, and the Latin description of the embroidery of the great wardrobe of Edward III. But surname is found as early as 12. 51 and Robert D. Woe or Wood Woes refers to an actual legendary or mythological creature, the term found in 1380s and Wycliffe's Bible translating the Greek and then Latin to Pilosi and Isa 1321 occurs in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight date. Uh, to shortly after Whitecliff's Whitecliff's Bible, the old High German, had blah blah blah. I don't know if I'm going to read too much about this origins. Figures similar to European uh, wild men occur worldwide in various earlier tra- times. There's a recorded example of a type of character was Enkindu, the ancient Mesopotamian epic of. Gilgamesh. So Enkindu, or Enkindu, is a central figure of the ancient Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh. Enkindu 
or in Kindu, was formed from clay and saliva of Aruru, the goddess of creation, and rid Galgamus of his rid Galgamus of his arrogance. The story of the, he is a wild man raised by animals and ignorant to human society until he is bedded by Ishtar. Oh, that's great. Uh, thereafter, the series of interactions with humans in human ways bring him closer to civilization, culminating in a wrestling match with Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk. And in Kindu, embodies the wild and natural world, though equal to Gilgamesh's strength and bearing, he acts as in some ways as a antithesis to the cultured urban bred warrior king and can do then becomes the king's constant companion and deeply beloved friend accompanying him on adventures until he is stricken with illness and dies the deep and tragic loss of Enkindu profoundly inspires Gilgamesh on a quest to escape death by obtaining godly immortality. All the sorcerers sometimes translated his name to Enkimdu, or Ebanai, or Enkita, or Enkindu, is the modern variant. Creation of Enkindu, the people of York complained the gods that their mighty Gilgamesh is too harsh. The goddess Aruru forms in Kindu from the water and clay as rival to Gilgamesh and countervailing force. force. And Kindu lives in the wild, roaming with the herds and joining the game at the watering holes. M.H. Haynes notes that this and early Mesopotamian tradition, the wild man living apart and roaming in the hinterland, who eats grass like animals and, and like him, drinks from the water places. A hunter sees him and realizes that in Kindu, who is freeing the animals from his traps, he reports this to Gilgamesh, who sends the temple prostitute Shamhat to deal with them. And Kintu spends six days and seven nights making love to Shamhat. Well, good for him. After which, sensing her scent upon him, the animals flee from him and he finds he cannot return to the old ways. He returns to Shamhat, to Shamhat, who teaches him the ways of civilized people. He now protects the shepherd's flocks against predators turning against his old life. Jastro and Clay are are of the opinion that the story in Kindu was originally separate tale to illustrate man's career destiny and how through intercourse with a woman he awakens to the senses of human dignity. Shamhat tells him of the clay of Uruk 
and of its king, Gilgamesh. He travels to Uruk and engages Gilgamesh in a wrestling match as a test of strength, and Gilgamesh wins, and the two become fast friends. It talks about his adventures with Gilgamesh. Uh, In Kindu, assist Gilgamesh in defeating and killing Hume Baba, a guardian monster of the cedar forest. Hume Baba, guardian of the forest. Uh, Also Assyrian spelling, also spelled uh, Hewawa, a Sumerian spelling and surname the terrible was the monstrous giant of memorable age raised by you to the sun how baba was the guardian of the cedar forest which the gods lived by the will of the god in enlil who assigned Ababa as a terror to human beings, Gilgamesh defeated the great enemy. Description, his face was like of a lion. When he looks at someone, it is the look of death. Humbaba's roar is a flood. His mouth is deep and his breath is fire. He hears hundreds he is heard a hundred lieges away. Any rustling in the forest, he would go down into the forest. And various examples of his face described in single coiling line like that of the coiled entrails of men and beasts, of which omens might be read. Another description of from George. Burkhart translates Gilgamesh says he had paws of a lion, a body covered in thorny scales, his feet was of claws of vultures, and his head were the horns of a wild bull, and his tail and phallus like the ends of snakes' heads. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All the jokes you can make out of that one. Yet another description, newly discovered tablet. Suleiman Laya is somewhat positive about Humbaba. Where Humbaba came and went, there was a track. The paths were in good order, and the way was well trodden. Through all forests, a bird began to sing. The wood wood pigeon was moaning and the turtle dove calling the answer. Monkey mothers sing aloud. A youngster monkey shriek like a band of musicians and drummers daily. They bash out the rhythm uh, in the presence of Humbaba. In this version of the story, Humbaba is beloved of the gods and kind of a king 
in the palace of the forest. Monkeys are his heralds, birds, his courtiers, his entire throne room freeze with the heady aroma of cedar resin. The, the tablet goes on to portray Gilgamesh as an aggressor who destroys the, a forest unnecessarily. His death is lamented by Enkidu. whom Baba is first mentioned in the Tablet 2 of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And after Gilgamesh, Enkindu becomes friends following the initial fight. They set out to adventures and the cedar forest beyond the seven mountain range and slay Humbaba. Enkindu and Gilgamesh vows since a man cannot pass beyond the final ends of life, I want to set out into the mountains and to establish my renown there. Gilgamesh tricks the monster into giving away his seven radiances by offering his sister as wife and concubine. When Humbaba's guard is down, Gilgamesh punches him and captures the monster. Defeated, Humbaba appeals to the to a receptive Gilgamesh for mercy, but Enkindu convinces Gilgamesh to slay Humbaba in last effort. Humbaba tries to escape, but is decapitated by Enkindu and some of the versions, both heroes together. The head is put in a leather sack, which is brought to in. Lil, the god who set Humbaba as forest guardian, Enlil becomes enraged upon learning this and redistributes Humbaba's seven splendors and, or, or some tablets, auras. He gave Humbaba's first aura to the field. He gave his second aura to the river and gave his third aura to the red reeds. He gave his fourth aura to the lions. He gave his fifth aura to the palace. One text says, debt slaves. He gave the sixth aura to the forest. One text says, the hills. And he gives the seventh aura to Nugal. No vengeance was laid upon the heroes, though. It Enlil says he should have eaten the bread that you eat and should have drank the water that you drank. He should have been honored. <clears throat> so what is Nungal? Nungal, or Mayan Nungal, is the goddess of the underworld worshipped by the Sumerians, Babylonians, and Akkadians. She is the consort to the god Burdu. Her title was the queen of Ekur, where she held the tablet of life and carried out the judgments of the wicked. And the god Burdu is the god of the underworld, worshipped of the Syrians, blah, 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 blah. 
consortu Mannungel and synchronized with Nergal. Uh, Nergal, Nigel, Nigali, and it goes through the blah blah blah. It was the deity worship throughout Mesopotamia, the main seat of the worship of Kutha, represents the mound of Tel Eberian. Nergal is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible as the deity of the sea, uh, the sea Kutha. The men of the Babylonian made. Sokoth Benath, the men of Kuth made Nergal. Nergal is a lion, anyways. So then we, you know, go back into this little journey. Okay, Gilgamesh comes with blah, 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 another, all right, uh, Cedar Forest, okay. Uh, and Kindu selects particular tall trees to provide lumber for the new door for Enlil's temple in Uruk. And later, he assists Gilgamesh in slaying uh, Gujelena, a bull of heaven, which the gods have sent to kill Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh as a reprisal for rejecting Ishtar's affection while enumerating the misfortunes that befell her former lover. Ishtar demands that the pair pay for the bull's destruction. Shamash appeals to the other gods to let both of them live, but only Gilgamesh is spared, and Kindu succumbs to a wasting illness. He represents the hero who wins fame but dies early. Gilgamesh responds to the loss of Enkindu journeys into the underworld. Uh, no, response to Enkidu by seeking the uh, Una Pishtim in quest of eternal life. Una Pishtim is a character in the Epic of Gilgamesh who is passed by Enki or to abandon his worldly possessions and create a giant ship called the Preserver of Life. He was also tasked with bringing his wife and family and relatives along with the craftsmen of the village. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Yeah, we're we're now... Okay. There is another non-canonical tablet in which in... Kidnudu's journeys into the underworld, but maybe scholars consider the tablet to be a sequel or added on to the original epic, as the work was revised several times. The sections about the flood is also considered to be an addition. There is a growing school of thought interpreters 
that interprets Gilgamesh and Enkindu's relationship as an erotic one. Of course, you've got a bunch of sodomites. Why wouldn't you? they want you to believe in such things? So. Yeah, National Geographic about the wild man. And a very interesting photograph of a guy, a European wild man, becomes a bear, stag, devil. They invoke death, both bestow fertile life. They live in the modern era, but they summon old traditions. And it's got this guy in like a burlap sack with the rows of sharp teeth that are be where his eyes would probably be and then he's in this kind of dark I don't know what that would be, wool or or silkish like thing outfit and in brown shoes. It's pretty hideous actually. It looks like some kind of a prime the primal heart still beats in Europe. Deep beneath the gloss of cell phone sophistication lies rituals that hark back to the harvest and solstice and fear of a winter dark. Monsters loom in the shadowy heart, but so does the promise of spring rebirth and fertile crops and women cradling newborn babies. It turns out that Europe at at least pockets of it has not lost the connection to nature's rhythm. The connection is rekindled during festivals that occur across the continent from the beginning of December until Easter. The celebrations correspond to Christian holy days or holy days, holly, holly, like the, all right, we'll go just pass that up. But the rituals themselves often predate Christianity. The roots are difficult to trace, men, and until recently, it has almost always been men don costumes that hide their faces, conceal their true forms. Then they take to the streets where their disguises allow them to cross the line between human and animal real and spiritual, civilization and wilderness, death and rebirth. A man assumes a dual personality, says Antonio Carnario, who dresses as the devilish Carato from Carnival for Carnival in Podence, Portugal. It becomes sometimes mysterious. I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right. Anyways, I tried to learn Portuguese once, but it was a failure. Uh, photographer Charles uh, Frigger um, sets out to capture what he calls tribal Europe over two winters of travel through 19 countries, forms the costumes that he chronicles very, very between region and even between villages. In Corlata, Romania, men dress as stags, reenacting a hunting a hunt with dances. In Sardinia, Italy, goats and deer and bears and 
or boars or bears may play a sacrificial role. Throughout Austria, uh, Krampus, the beastly counterpart to St. Nicholas, frightens naughty children. But everywhere there is wild, the wild man. In France, he is homo savage. And in Germany, wilder man. In Poland, Mac Sedula is the clownish version. He dresses in an animal skins and lichen and straw and tree branches. Half man, half beast, the wild man stands for the complicated relationship that human communities, especially rural ones, have with nature. The bear is the wild man's close counterpart. In some legends, the bear is his father, a beast that walks upright. The bear also hibernates in the winter, symbolic of death and rebirth of hibernation. Herald the arrival of spring with all its plenty. For festival participants saying, Ferger, Ferger, uh, becoming a bear is a way of ex- to express the beast and in a way to control the beast. Traditionally, the festivals are also the rite passage for young men. Dressing in garb of a bear or a wild man is a way of showing your power, says Ferger. Heavy bells hanging from many customs is single to, customs to single virility. The question is whether Europeans, civilized Europeans, believe that these rituals must be observed in order for the land and livestock and the people to be fertile. Do they really believe that the costumes and rituals have the power to banish evil and end winter? They all know they shouldn't believe it, says Gerald Creed, who has studied the mass traditions of Bulgaria. Modern life tells them not to, but they remain open to the possibility that the old ways run deep. And then if you want to, you can find uh, photographs online of all the different costumes that get out of the way. Uh, Yeah, uh, images, simple images of uh, their characters and how they dress up. Some kind of looks squat, Sasquatch, a little squatchy. Don't know. I do not know. Wild men may be lurking in North American remote woods.
wild man maybe lurking in the America's World Wars Mysterious Universe.org. The last one we read was from Smithsonian Institute. I thought it was a feral human. Mike Woolley's recalls an incident arguably the strangest to occur during his time on, as an outdoorsman. I heard about them and done some reading about them, recalling the events of December day of that December day in 1981. Wally soberly tells of something frightening that occurred in Louisiana backwoods that changed his life. It was a beautiful day. A perfect day for a hunt. Wooly arrived at his deer stand located down in an old logging road in an area he had hunted frequently. And parking his vehicle halfway down the road, he walked to the tree stand, climbed into it, and silently enjoyed the cool air of the day while waiting for signs of game in the area. After some time... Uh, some of the animals crash. The sound of an, of an animal crashing through the brushes caught his attention. Accompanying the sounds had a small doe. Had been a small doe, which darted directly towards his stand and nestled beneath it. Breathless, Wooly initially thought that the tired deer was chased by a larger potential mates and wanted just waited eagerly for the buck to appear so it could be claimed. What appeared instead defied every concept of what should exist in Louisiana or anywhere else. Tremendous a tremendous humanoid covered in short hair appeared instead, headed directly towards the deer at Wooly's tree stand. Seemingly unaware of the hunter's resting above, the hunter resting above, the figure approached to just a short distance, 20 yards before it stopped, and becoming alert to Wooly's presence, peered up at him, its face wrenching angrily. As far as a Bigfoot, I thought it was something that only existed out in California. I thought that it was something somebody made up to make money off of. Contrary to his previous feelings, Wally watched the thing for several uh, frightening moments. Eventually, rising his, raising his hunting rifle and observing the thing's face, though, through the scope, though afraid to shoot anything, that looked so human. The face was too human. The eyelashes, the teeth, the jaw structure, the forehead. The face was light brown, like it had a dark suntan. But I couldn't pull the trigger because something told me this ain't right. It's not the right thing to do. The thing growled at Wool in a way that reminded him of a lion's roar to which a loud whistle echoed from some place up the ridge 
as though to respond. The wild man became alert to this and appeared to respond with a similar whistle, then looked back at Wally, who by now had chosen to take action. Leaping from the tree stand, he took off to the wagon, road attending the attempting to cross the short distance between his truck and the location where the where this strange and feral intruder had now begun to pursue him. <clears throat> Wooly made it to his truck and turning to fire a warning shot, watch as the wood on the nearby tree splintered only feet away from the approaching man-beast. He then entered his truck and left, watching behind him as the second humanoid emerged from the brush, was joined in the initial pursuer to watch him as he sped away from, from terrifying experience. If anything, Wooly is lucky to have survived the alleged encounter was something that, if not human, had been remarkably close, but still different enough to arouse confusion about what he had seen. Whether killing it in self-defense would be ethical or even lawful, Wooly hadn't been quick to accept the idea of Bigfoot standing before him, and despite thinking it could have been someone in a costume, had initially questioned whether some kind of feral human might have stood before him upon observing the details of its face through the scope of this rifle. While the idea of Bigfoot at large, hairy man-like beasts uh, purported to exist in North America wilds, is and has been popular a popular culture phenomenon for the last half a century or more, Less often is the issue of the actual feral humans discussed in relation to supposed Bigfoot encounters. Science does not accept the existence of such creatures as reality, yet at least. But on the subject of feral human existence in remote areas, there may indeed be some compelling, if not frightening, supporting data. And what led to the authorship of the con artist, I'm saying that publicly, of the Missing 411 book series, which I would strongly suggest that you don't read. It's not, David Pollitz has a very uh, sordid and shady past. And I wouldn't trust the guy at all. He's just a bookseller who's trying to capitalize on mysterious disappearances of people in the forest uh, uh, and getting people to think as Bigfoot or this, that, or the other. And in the man, uh, I don't trust. I just don't trust him. You might want to trust him. I don't know. It's your business, I guess. But uh, a retired law enforcement officer doesn't all of a sudden, just because you're a retired, have the right to, to have access to these information, you have some kind of unique connection to it, or or that you have some kind of unique uh, 
all of a sudden uh, open door to all this information that's been hi- been hidden by the forestry department. And I will not read this part of it. So this part, if you want to read it, you can. Anyways, I am not impressed with 411. Just not. It's all about selling books. Oh, it is. I'm sorry. Sorry if that sounds negative. But to, until somebody could convince me otherwise, I mean, I've had guests on, have, uh, all, a couple of them now who've uh, uh, really, well, exposed who he is. So I'm not going to let, you know, I'm going to trust the guests that have been on the show over this guy. <clears throat> Cannibals. Cannibalism in Europe. As we lead into cannibalism. And we try to tie in the troglodytes, cannibals, wild men, and Indian folklore and Eurasian folklore. Because there is a connection. Europe's hypocritical history of cannibalism. It is perhaps fitting that the conference should take place in Europe because the region has a long chronicle of cannibalism from prehistoric through the Renaissance and right up to the 21st century with the the Miaos case. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's M-E-I-W-E-S. In addition, the area has requested us a bounty of fictional cannibals indulging Dracula, who arguably the world's most famous consumer of human blood and gory harbinger of the current pop culture fascination of vampires and zombies. Very much European. If you're into zombies and vampires, you probably have a lot of European blood. Europe boasts of the oldest fossil evidence of cannibalism. In 1999, science article, French a paleontologist reported that a 100,000-year-old bone bones, and I put that in big quotes because the dating process is absolutely bunk, from the uh, six Neanderthal victims found in the French cane called Moula Gersi had been broken by another Neanderthal uh, Neanderthals in such a way as to extract marrow and brains. Mm-hmm. In addition, tool maker tools marks on the mandible and femur suggest that tongue and thigh meat had been cut off for consumption. Cannibalism at uh, Mala Gersi wasn't an isolated incident in prehistory. In the past decades, research have reported other evidence of Neanderthals continued eating each other until just before their disappearance. <clears throat> in a particularly grisly discovery at the El Cidron Cave in Spain, paleontologists discovered that an extended family of 12 individuals had been dismembered, skinned, and then eaten by other Neanderthals. 
about 50,000 years ago, in quotes, as I put it. I don't buy into the 50,000 or 100,000 years. I don't know how old the world is, but I do know one thing. The dating processes, all of them, are so flawed and subjective that it's just, you get any number you want until you find the one that it is that you want. Because people don't want to believe that maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, or 500 years ago, people... We're eating each other. And guess what? You're going to find out in this research, this study, that that is just the case, especially when it comes to Europe. Cannibalism is still alive and well, but it's only for the elite right now. But there was a time in Western Europe and Russia where it was common practice from the Pol Pauper the poor slave on up to the oligarchy and the, the uh, aristocrats, the monarchies. Yes, indeed. And it still is going on, but they call it things differently now. It's trying to make it more scientific and less grisly, less barbaric. Even if Europe Homo sapiens didn't consume each other in prehistory, they certainly did in modern times. References to acts of cannibalism are sprinkled throughout many religious and historical documents, such as reports that cooked human flesh was being sold in 11th century English markets during times of famine, such as J. Rubenstein, the historian of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. However, the world's first cannibal incident reported by mutual independent first-hand accounts took place during the Crusades by the European soldiers, Rubenstein says. The first, uh, these first-hand stories agree that in 1098, which is more like 798, after the successful siege and capture of the Syrian city of Ma'ara, Christian soldiers ate flesh from of local Muslims. <clears throat> Thereafter, the fact got murky. Robinson says some chronicles report that the bodies were uh, secretly consumed in wicked banquets born out of famine without the authorization of military leaders. Reuben says other reports suggest that the cannibalism was done with tacit approval of military supervisors who wish to use the stories of barbaric act as a psychological fear tactic in future uh, crusade battles. Either way, post-crusade European society was not comfortable with the, what happened in Marara, Robinson-Stein says, allegedly. As we're going to find out, that's probably only a certain segment of the people that were not happy about it. Everybody who wrote about it was disturbed, he said. The first crusade was, is the first great European epic. It was a story that people wanted to celebrate, but first they had to deal with the embarrassing stain. Part of the problem was the cannibalism in Ma. Ara simply didn't fit 
in with the European self-image, medieval times, cultural enemies, not military religious heroes, were commonly depicted as cannibals and giants, especially narratives of territorial invasion and conquest, argues Geraldine uh, Henge. Uh, In Cannibalism, the First Crusade and the the genesis of medieval romance, witches, Jews, savages, Orientals, and pagans are considered as indeed must be cannibals, but in the 12th century medieval imagery, the Christian European subject cannot. But it turned out that it be. By the 16th century, cannibalism was not just part of the mental furniture of Europeans. It was a common part of everyday medicine from Spain to England. Additionally, little bits of pulverized mummies imported from from Egypt were used in prescriptions against disease, but the practice sued and expanded to include the flesh, skin, bones, and blood, and fat, and urine of local cadavers, such as recently uh, executed criminals and bodies dug up illegally from graveyards, say, University Durham Richard Suggs, who published a book in 2011 called Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Corpse Medicine from Renaissance to Victorians. And by the way, I'll be reading that book as part of this series. The medical cannibalism reached a feverish pitch in 1680, Suggs says, but the practice can be traced back to the Greek doctor Galen, who recommended human blood as part of some remedies in the second century AD and continued all the way to the 20th century. In 1910, a German pharmaceutical catalog was still selling mummy, says Louise Noble, who also wrote a book on the topic called Medical Cannibalism and Early Modern English Literature and Culture. I'd love to get that book, but it's hard to find. I don't think you get a PDF, and it costs like up to 100 plus bucks. While Europeans ate mummy, the cure of their physical ailments, the same culture sent missionaries and colonists to the New World to cure New World indigenous people of their purported barbaric cannibalism some of which is entirely fabricated as a rationale for conquest. A boulder, boulder says it's... Hold on. Hi. You back already, buddy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he was ready to come back. He's ready to come back, was he? He said, I want to go see my dad. He wants to go with this. He wants to love you. He wants to We're be. limiting that. To well, we, we, he's talking about the game itself. No, I'm just talking about being glued to the internet. Yeah. This program, you you can see it, but uh, it's, it's, not, it's not. It's not covering his brain, did so. Did you see it? I already know about all that. 
Well, it showed, so it showed the kid that they traced one kid, and they took an x-ray of his brain before they sent him off into this wilderness uh, camp to get rid, you know, to unplug him uh, from the internet. And Chase, then, turn that off. Then he came back, and they did another brain scan, and it was... Better, Think. It was like, you know, the activity in your brain. Hi, Hannah. I love you. I love you. Okay. You're not, you're, you're, you're not watching any more of that. Why? Because you, cause you already watched some this morning. I know. You know what you do? You know what you do? He can watch an hour, Dan. No, he already, he already has. He, he's been over, he can watch another hour because he's been over to my house and he hasn't watched anything. Oh. Well, you know, you know, Chase, you play with your toys. I told you that's how it goes, so. Okay, honey. Uh, all right, let's see. Uh, do you have any comments on your, your fancy thing on your deck? Your little things? Um, no? no? I haven't, but I haven't been out front that much. Okay. You know, now that the weather is nicer, maybe. But the last couple of days, it's cold up inside. Sure. You'll be all right, buddy. I'm going to make you some lunch. Don't act like it's the worst thing in the world. But he did good. He did good. Two hours. He was really playing with Legos, and he was so, you know. So I, I make allowances for that. Sure. Good. All right. Thanks, okay. Thanks Fran. Sorry, buddy, but you could do something else. You can watch it later. I'll let you watch it later. But right now, I want you to do something here. You got all these toys. Clean them up if you want. Build your thing that you're supposed to be doing. Okay, well, you could, you want to pout? You need some juice? Well, I'm going to be making uh, lunch and dinner here in a second. So. Come on, you come with me. Sorry about all this. Here we are reading about stuff that, well, I was trying to have it sneak in. I sneak it in while my son's not around because it's not necessarily age appropriate. Oof, my goodness. Chase, I'll let you watch it later. You can't. You know, you just can't just continually watch videos. That's not living. You know what I discovered, Chase? Even a lot of the videos that I've been watching over the past couple of years that I thought were educating me and teaching me something weren't really teaching me much of anything. It was just a waste of time. A whole lot of imagery. Somebody repeating what somebody else says, and the problem with the imagery part of it is, and we're, we all are guilty of repeating what everybody else says. It's problem with imagery, just following imagery that somebody else's imagination. You got your own imagination. You don't need to have somebody else's imagination. Oh shoot! You need to develop your own imagination. That's what makes a difference in a man's life. 
is his ability to use his mind and his and his hands to make his own stuff. I mean, you could do art. You're really good at art. You know what you could do? You could do another art piece for my uh, YouTube channel. You want to do that? All right. Okay. I usually water down his juice because it's better for him. And yes, it's tap water. And yes. All right. I'm going to end this. I, uh, I will just have to zoom apart. Anyways, life is good. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.